to the hunts to pull up chair For some shenanigans 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 Hi everyone, I'm Kelly I'm Bernie And welcome back to another episode of Shenanigans Today we... Who are we talking about today? We're talking about my mother today. So what was your mum's name? Her name was Frida. So tell me about your mum who... Well, she, she was small, under five foot, and she had large brown sparkling eyes, reddish brown hair, olive skin, and the most spectacular dimples I've ever seen, before or since. And her dimples were such a, a part of her that her firstborn grandson always called her Dimps rather than Nana or Gran. And she remained Dimps for the rest of his or her life, yes. Uh, so, so how old was she when she came she, she to was, uh, She was 18. She was born in 1896. She came out here in 1913. 13th, September 1913. And where from? So from Germany. Um, what had happened was there was this uh, pioneer woman out here in Australia. She'd been out and built a farm up at, around the back of Finlay. She had three, she had five sons and one daughter only. And she went back to Germany to get a companion for her daughter and through circumstances my mother was chosen as the companion and she was brought out here, supposedly for two years. But then yeah, she hadn't been out here very long when the uh, war started and there was no way she could get back. And she was 18 at this stage? Yes, she was 18, yes. And uh, I would assume English wouldn't have been great for her? She didn't have any English at all. <laughs> she was a little German-speaking girl. And uh, on the farm, these five big German boys must have had a lot of fun because they taught her every swear word there was on the Australian <laughs> language. <laughs> she was known none the wiser to what it meant. And uh, the little girls she was to be companion to, uh, same age as her. There'd been some uh, terrible accident in her early life where she'd been impaled, so they say, and uh, stitched up very badly so that she would never have a normal life a normal married life, let's put it that way. And after Mum had been out here about six months, this little girl went into the storeroom and blew her brains out. And the storeroom was full of kerosene tins, empty kerosene tins. And to her dying day, Mum could hear that noise of the reverberating of the kerosene tins and the, the bullet. So uh, 
So then she was stuck there on the farm with the brothers and the mother. She was stuck the, there on the, the farm with this very severe German woman. She wrote regularly to her brothers but never received a letter. How many brothers? She had two brothers, a half-brother and a full brother. One day this woman sent her up into the front room to get some something out of a drawer and in that drawer she found all the letters she had ever written and all the letters her brothers had ever returned to her that she'd never received. And this woman had kept them from her? She'd kept them from her. This, she obviously, I would say, had a plan that she would marry one of the boys, one of the sons. Why alienate her, if not? So your mum is here on this farm and seeing this tragedy and thinking that her family back in Germany had completely forgotten about exactly, her. Exactly, and she, the Australian outback, the heat of it, and what she couldn't stand with the north winds, and always throughout our lives, we would say, north wind today, better watch mum, because she would get such a mood on when there was a north wind. And she remembers the horror of watching an eagle come down, pick up a lamb in its claws and fly it up into the sky and drop it. She was absolutely horrified by that vision. And so she's gone through all this and then how did she end up in Melbourne? That's a good question. She, she never did speak a great deal about the way things happened. But she, and how she got down to Melbourne, I don't know, because there wasn't a train. There was, weren't buses in those days. I suppose horse and cart. I don't know. And, and without any English too. So yeah. how did she get down to Melbourne? Why did she want to leave and get down to Melbourne? But she did, and uh, she got a job because of all her... I haven't told her early story yet, but because of all her domestic uh, skills, she got a job as a housekeeper for a couple in Malvern. And she uh, worked there. Uh, I'd better go back a bit and uh, go back to her childhood uh, it's confused about her. She always maintained her mother was a German, a French Jewess. But when some of the younger kids have been looking into the records, they can't find anything on it. So there's some confusion about the origins of her mother, except it's a fact that this little Jewish girl married a German soldier who took her back to Germany, married her and took her back to Germany. And they had a son and they had my mother. And there's something in some records about a, another daughter who died. But I, Mum never, ever in her whole life that I knew her mentioned a sister, never, ever. So I don't know where that comes into it. Anyway, when uh, my mum was born in 1896 and her mother died when she was six years old, 
which would have brought it up to the early 1900s, wouldn't it? So where did she learn all of her domestic skills then? So her, her mother died when she was six and she had this wonderful relationship with her father. Um, she remembers being in the garden with him and she remembers very, very lovingly that he'd made her some moccasins out of some sort of fur. Who knows, rabbit, whatever. But she had these little moccasins that he'd made, handmade for her. And she had a lovely relationship with her dad. Uh, but he married again after the wife died. He married a Lutheran woman. And they had a son too, a younger son. So uh, her father died when she was 14. And the stepmother then put her into a domestic college, I suppose you'd call it, where the girls were taught how to be good wives and they learned everything about keeping house and being a mother, etc., etc. And that's where she got her domestic skills. And she was in that college when the Australian German woman came out and took her back to Australia. Anyway, uh, the war started and she became the enemy alien and she had to report every week to the local police station. This is when she was in Melbourne? This was in, yes. And so how old was she at this stage? Well, it must have been 1914. She would have been about 19, 1920s. She had to report every week. I remember reading the archives. The enemy alien reported today. Nothing has happened since last week. And so on. It went on and on like that until the enemy alien reported today. So and explain to me why she was called the enemy alien. Oh, did anybody born in Germany, it was the same in the last war, that they were enemies of the country and they were aliens. Wow. Enemy alien, that was the term they gave them. She was the enemy alien until she married my dad and they closed the file on her then and she became his wife. But prior to him, uh, to prior to them getting married, they met when uh, she first went down to Melbourne and he was driving for Nestle's and he'd taken the boss to uh, some official place in the city and he saw this beautiful little creature walking up the steps. She was going to report to her on her weekly uh, check enemy alien checkout and uh, he saw her going up. He was out of the car like a shot and up those steps. <laughs> <laughs> He'd never seen anything so beautiful in all his life. And uh, he would he would have been quite good looking. He was a small man, but he had dark wavy hair, navy blue dark hair, and sparkly, sparkly blue eyes and a very wide shoulders and strong body. So I expect he was quite attractive in his own way too. <laughs> um, and given the climate of the day as well, the fact that she's going and reporting as an enemy, and here's this 
Australian man that has fallen head over heels for a German woman. Yeah. And not only that, he was he would have been 25, 26, and he wasn't in the army because I've told you his story yeah. about his rheumatic fever. So not only was he not in the in a uniform, but he married a German. Yeah. So you can imagine what was they thrown would at have, him. They would have got a lot of flack, wouldn't they? Oh, they got a lot of flack, yes. And his sisters, his five sisters, they didn't approve, nor did the mother. Because thinking about, you know, if you had been asked many years later why you married a wog, the attitudes when oh. your parents met would have been horrible. Unbelievable, unbelievable in the First World War. And it all came from women, apparently. But um, anyway, our dad had uh, been married before. Not for very long, uh, because his wife had TB and she died, leaving him with a little boy who also had TB in his system, apparently, because he had a club foot. And he was in the hospital when Mum met Dad. Dad was very religious, Church of England, very religious, and the rule in those days was you didn't marry for two years until after your first wife or husband's death. So he'd met Mum in between. So they couldn't get married, and but he courted her. Once he met her, he courted her all the time and drove her around in the automobile. <laughs> very, very uh, special. So what do you know about their wedding? They were married at St James Old Cathedral in the city. It's about all I know about their wedding. But prior to the wedding, he used to drive her, take her out and drive her home to the Malvern House. And they had a son in 1917. So they, they uh, had this little boy and then eventually in 1918, March 1918, they married. So how many children all up did your parents have together? Together, let me see, uh, Harold, Roma, Ruthie, Joycey, Alan and Liz, Bernie and Pat. They had eight living children together and there were a few miscarriages and then there was his son by the first marriage. So, you know, we had... Uh, a big family. So tell me, what's your earliest memory of your mum? Oh, I remember her leaving, having to go and leave me in the hospital when I was pinch pinching my cheeks. cheeks. Yeah, that was the that was my feeling of her that she was then walked away from me. I don't, I couldn't remember the details, but I can remember my loving, loving mother walking away from me. So that's my first memory of her. Uh, so what would then be your fondest memory of your mum? Of all of them. She was always there. She was the most loving, loving woman for all of us. And she was always there. 
She never turned her back on anything that happened in our lives. She was always there to see us through. And this was the same for most of the children. No doubt they all have their own versions of it, but from what I could see, she was a loving mother, let's put it that way. Not a perfect mother, who is, but a loving mother. And uh, what was I up to? So what would be something even now that reminds you of her? Is there a food or a Oh, scent there's many a... things. Violets always remind me, because it was a custom in the family. As soon as the older girls went out to work, on their way home on payday, in, at Flinders Street Station, there were always little stalls that sold flowers. And the girls would always buy violets for Mum on payday and bring them home. And when the violets were out of season, they'd buy her strawberries. We all loved her so much and we wanted to spoil her rotten. And this was a custom that my sister and I carried on many years later. We'd always buy her violets. And, uh, and I remember her, she, she just loved them so much and she'd pick them up and plunge her nose into them. And then she'd put them into a vase. She loved flowers very much. I remember one of, many, many, many years later, one of uh, our little granddaughter, mum's little granddaughters, my niece, they lived not too far away and she was only about three. And on the way home, over to visit us, she always picked buttercups. And she'd give them to mum and mum would hold them up to her nose and then she'd put them in a jam jar and put them on the windowsill. And it was little Jilly and uh, Jilly always remembers it to this day. And when the buttercups come out, I usually ring Jill and say, the buttercups are out. <laughs> she loved chooks. We always had chooks. As soon as, once the depression had come out and we could afford them, we had chooks. And she was the greatest cook you've ever come across. Naturally, she'd learned the skills in the German college and uh, she was a great cook and my father was a great eater and he loved her cooking, <laughs> as we all did. And she was very uh, good about uh, food values too. It's probably why I'm still alive at 90. So anyway. one of the, um, the recipes that has flowed entirely through the family would be potato pancakes. Oh yes, kartoffel puffers. Uh, this was the German uh, potato pancake and we've always, and of course during the depression, uh, potatoes were one of the cheapest things. So we had a lot of kartoffel puffers, but we all loved them. We never had enough of them. Never had enough of them. So I remember growing up with you cooking them for me and they're probably one of my most favourite foods. Yes, they are delicious, there's no doubt. And then a few years ago when I went to Germany, there was uh, we were in Bremen, which is the town that she left from, and there was like a, a cultural festival on. 
And so there were all of these stalls with traditional food and drinks. So there was like mulled wine and all of these meats. And then we were walking around and there was this one stall and I knew what it was without being able to read in German. And I went over to this stall and I said, oh, I have one of those. She said, do you know what they are? And I said, absolutely, I do. And it was quite a... How did they taste com comparing them? Absolute same flavour. Yes. They were yes. a bit thicker and they served them over there with mayonnaise and applesauce. Oh, yes, yes. Um, no. and so Not necessary. <laughs> no, and so this woman said to me, you know, do you want the, the mayonnaise or the applesauce? And I said, no, no, thanks. She goes, I'll give you mayonnaise anyway. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> and it was just, it was quite incredible to be... To back in, into the memory. Absolutely. Yes. And the, the flavour was exactly the same. Ah, yes. Yes. My father loved her dearly. And they had a marriage that lasted till the day they died, till the day she died. Uh there so was a died. lot of lot of trouble in there was a lot the cultural difference was no doubt uh, the results of that I don't know but they they and the f fact that my father became uh, addicted to drink too and uh, they had they had a lot of fights but they always loved each other and they were always there for each other when there was trouble there was they were backing each other up all the time. And uh, so she went on and had all of these children and through the depression. And then there was the terrible thing where the two boys died. And that was the most shocking thing for her. I can remember the, in those days, the, few, the, the coffin used to come home and stay overnight in the house. No. God. And I can remember my brother in his coffin and uh, I was lifted up. I was so short I couldn't see. They lifted me up to see him and my mother had some forget-me-nots by the uh, coffin and she gave me a handful of forget-me-nots to put beside him. I can remember them putting them on his shoulder. So that was that was the first brother who died, and then within twelve months, the half brother had died too. And uh, he loved Mum very much. Uh, he'd gone away to. Uh, I've told his story before, and he came back because he wanted to be with Mum when he was sick. Well, he was with Mum when he died, and. Uh, that was a great tragedy in my mother's life. And she was absolutely mentally broken with these, the, these two deaths. And then she became pregnant for the last time. This was 1936, early 36. And the doctor said he couldn't be responsible for her mental health that she must can't be home on her own. She must get out and get a job. So friends of ours were in the Salvation Army and he got her a job at a place called the People's Palace, 
which was like a hostel run by the Salvation Army. When country people came down to Melbourne, they didn't stay at hotels, they stayed at the People's Palace. Well, he got Mum a job there, and uh, while she was there, along came somebody from way, way back from the Finley days. Wow. And... Uh, How old was she at this stage? Well, she it was 1936, and she was born in uh, 1896, so what would that make her? 36 and another four years? 40. 40. Mm. And then after, she, she only worked until she was so much pregnant she couldn't work any longer, she had the baby. And it was another boy and he was a delightful child. So uh, did she ever find a, a German community here? Not till many years later when uh, we lived in Ivanhoe. She went to a place called the Continental Club, I think it was called. And she met some German people there. Also, when my sister, younger sister, was getting married, she saw advertised this dressmaker in Richmond and she went along to her and they were German people, a mother and daughter. And to make their living out here, the mother used to do the sewing, uh, specialising in wedding dresses. And of course, Mum went along and met these people and uh, these two women and became very friendly with them and was able to dig up a bit of her German, which she'd forgotten all this time, and uh, had, had quite a social life with these two women. She lived until she was uh, 68. She died in 1963. Uh, in her latter years, uh, all the older girls were married. We were all married, of course. and uh, But the older girls uh, were, had homes dotted all around the east coast of Australia. And she used to go and spend two or three months of time with each of the girls and had lovely holidays with them. And she'd go to Sydney to be with Roma and then she'd go up. Ruth was up in northern New South Wales at the time and she went up there to stay. Prior to that, she'd had a sort of mental breakdown and uh, she'd lost a lot of weight. And because she lost a lot of weight, she felt she could go and buy clothes. <laughs> and she went out and bought some very, very pretty clothes. And off she went to have a holiday with Ruth. And uh, while she was up there, one day she was walking down the passage to go to the bathroom and Ruth heard this sigh, deep, deep sigh, and then a thump. And she went up and she was dead. She just dropped dead like that with an aneurysm. Uh, just boing. Wow. And that was that. Dad then went on, as I told you his story last week, the week before, and uh, 
he died when he was 82, 84, I think. Quite old, many years after Mum. And so they're buried together with the boys? They're buried side by side, when the boys are side by side and Mum and Dad are side by side. So that's the story. But uh, she was such a loving mother. Every Everybody loved her. And she had, even though there wasn't much humour in, in her life, she had this lovely trilling laugh, tingly trilling laugh that she, she laughed a lot. And she used to have two sayings that she brought us up by, one of them from the Bible, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That was one of her favourites. She quote that a lot. And another was, to thine own self be true. Meaning, you know, don't betray your own ethics. Do what you think is the right thing. I believe that is uh, one of Hamlet's speeches in one of Shakespeare's to the this above all to thine own self be true. But she didn't do the this above all, it was just to thine own self. Well, she was a very wise woman by the sounds of it. Oh, she, she had, she was a very intelligent woman and she was very, very uh, compassionate, very loving woman. A lot of the girls, Girlfriends would come home to mum when they were in trouble and she would see them through and uh, and all the boys that, who came into the family loved her as their own mother and her grandchildren adored her. All her grandchildren adored her, those who remember her. And uh, she had a, a, a rough and tough life but... Uh, was well loved at the end of it. Dad used to tell me about, and very similar to a story you told me about it, that he would get into bed with her on a Sunday morning when he was a kid and yeah. eat chocolates in bed. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> he, she used, because of his black, black, brown eyes, she always called him agate eyes because she said his eyes were like agates. You know, the jewellery, the yeah. agate. And, uh, Oh, he, he and she had a wonderful relationship. He'd come running in with a smile on his face, throw himself on the bed, and she'd open up the blankets and he'd slide in beside her. And they'd have breakfast together and any treats that... She always kept a, a little box beside the bed full of sweeties of some sort, which dates back to the days when the girls used to bring their chocolates home yeah. from the movies. They were always, we used to go in and have the chocolates then, but uh, then in the latter times she bought chocolates and uh, kept them specially. And Andy just, oh, he loved those. And I think Lisa was part of it too. <laughs> but Andy remembers it vividly. Yeah. <laughs> mm. So overall your mum was a very strong, Oh, she must woman. have been, she must have been strong yeah. to survive what she survived, because there's lots of uh, what have I got? Let me have a look. Well, the moving to a different country at such a young oh, age. Oh, yeah, the bravery of her. Yeah. And to come down from the country to Melbourne. Absolutely. On her own, 
without the language, yep. knowing nobody down here, 18 years old. Was she a, what's the right word, was she a charming person? Oh, indeed, indeed. She had this warm personality that drew people in and she was very hospitable and, uh, yeah, people loved her. Which mm. it's so fascinating, isn't it, that with the life that she, the early life that she had, there was every opportunity to not be a to, warm yeah, and open well, person. I reckon you are what you are what you yeah. are. And she, and don't forget, it's how you're treated in your childhood. And she had this marvellous relationship with her father. She had a mother till she was six years old, and I'm sure that she doesn't remember much about that. But then she had this wonderful relationship with her father till she was 14, so that's another eight. Yeah. And they were formative years. Yeah. And there was love, 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 love there. And from the brothers too, Yeah. there was love. I don't know about the stepmother. I don't know about her. Uh, she didn't ever speak much about her to me. But in her latter life, uh, she was much spoiled, very spoiled, and uh, by the girls, by all of us. We all wanted to make her life better. And she was given lovely presents. And, and uh, my older brother, Alan, one of the twins, he adored her. And he used to, as soon as he was earning money, he used to, before he had girlfriends, he used to take her to every live show and concert that was on in Melbourne. They went to Gladys Moncrief and all of those uh, early uh, singers we used to have, he used to take her and uh, take her out to dinner and he, spoiled, he just loved her so much. From hearing both your mother and father's stories, the head of the creators of our family were both very strong people. Oh, absolutely uh, strong, yes. Uh, okay, Mum had those mental uh, times, but um, strong, solid people, but yes. Strong, and, and resilient people. Exactly. Well, I suppose you had to be in those days to survive. But they were stronger than most. Dad was very strong. Well, yeah. thanks for is sharing that, your mother's story. Yes, is that, there's, there's probably lots I've forgotten. but There's probably lots, but I think you've given a very, very warm, The essence of her. The essence of your mother mm. being mm. a warm, loving, strong, intelligent woman. Yes and living a miserable life. But towards the end, when uh, we were all grown up and the girls were married and her grandchildren came, she was very happy in that way. So that's the story. That's the story. Yeah. Can you make something of that? Oh, I think I can make something of that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. we'll leave it there for today. Yes. That's the story of Frida. That's my, Frida. My Frida Charlotte, your great grand no, your grandmother. Great no, grandmother. Great grandmother. I'm your grandmother. <laughs> You're my grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> yes, your great grandmother. <coughs> you would have oh you and she would have got on so and you so like her too. 
Yes. You would have got on so well with her. But all, all the grandchildren love her. You ask the old, older ones who remember her. They all love her. All loved her. And loved the memory of her. And as I say to uh, Nick, she was always dibs. Never gran or nana. Dibs. <laughs> sweet, eh? It's very sweet. Yeah. Very sweet. So we'll leave it there for today. Uh, we do need to also say a thank you to a friend of mine, Matt, who you heard at the opening of the podcast today. He made us a little tune. Oh, such a jolly tune, Matt. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> So thanks very much for that. We hope that you're enjoying this. Uh, one of the things that we should say to you that apparently is the done thing on podcasts is jump onto Apple, like, rate and review, leave <laughs> some comments and maybe leave, leave questions. If there's anything that you're interested to know that Nan may have memories of, I know I've got a lot of questions, but if you have any questions, please feel free to leave them either on our Facebook page or our Instagram. And we'll chat to you next week. So we will. Bye. <laughs>